I want you to stay with me on this uh, picture. I need your imagination. For most here, it is that I'm included. We may liken our standing before God to be this way. We are to live in response what God has already done for us. Get that. That's a critical, critical thought, truth, statement, summarizing Scripture. At least, certainly a very powerful thread through Scripture. We are to live in response to what God has already done for us. It's our responsibility to exhibit the courage of obedience. Key on the word of courage. So, imagine it this way. I have a source for this, so I'm, I'm not uh, scrambling for thoughts on this. Imagine yourself, you are standing in the doorway of a C-130, your paratrooper. You've got your parachute. There is a jump master right there near you. Your parachute's been fully inspected. Now, I'm going to have to weave in some theological realities in with this to make this imagination work. You've got God. You're good. God's got you on this jump, okay? You are going to land in the zone. Now, paratroopers don't always have that guarantee, but I'm speaking to a special kind of paratrooper this morning. You with me? So here you are in the doorway. You're at 1,300 feet. You look down and... Wow, <laughs> it looks like vehicles, people, if you can see them like ants, way down there. And you must jump. And when it says, go, you go. I have it on good authority that you don't stand there overthinking it. You just jump, and you jump with all your might. And then the rest you land. How does that fit in with what I said about God has provided the resources and we need the courage to act in him exactly this way? Because what God has called us to do and to be is to be like this paratrooper, to jump. What's the jump? The jump is obedience to what Christ has said for us to do because he's provided everything for us to do what is necessary. Get that part. This is not a jump in the dark, but it's going to be it's going to be dangerous because when you land, I mean, there's the obedience is going to unfold in many, many, many ways. Okay. What has this got to do with Isaiah? Everything, especially this first chapter. So hold on. I want to give you just a little briefing before we start jumping. <laughs> and we've got, uh, we've got some specifics on the jump. And I need to go over uh, several things. Take notes, if you will. You're going to need these. Uh, we're not going to go th straight through Isaiah, six, all 66 chapters. Now, that to me sounds delicious. We did this on Wednesday nights years ago. I don't know if anybody remembers that. And personally, it was one of the most profitable studies that I ever engaged in to go through that. We didn't have but a handful. But uh, Isaiah, it's wonderful. It's like a Mount Everest. <laughs> we're going to the top. But we're going to take some selected chapters from Isaiah. 
And obviously, we're going to start here with chapter 1, and there will be others along the way. I want you to be reacquainted with how to read and understand, to interpret and apply the prophets. They're greatly neglected. And I hope that we can come back to the prophet of Isaiah as in, in this hope to get our minds clear on exactly how the prophets work. A couple of matters to remember here, actually several, several issues. You've got to be ready for what I would call upper shelf statements and lower shelf statements. The, you're going to read things, or we will read things, we will see things, and you're going to say, I'm not sure I knew what he's talking about. Now, I, the communicator, have responsibility to try to be clear, be clear, be clear. But when you come to the prophets, it's going to really be a challenge. You've really got to screw your mind down tight. There'll be upper shelf statements and truths, and you'll wonder, how does that fit in to the plan and move, the movement of God? Why is the prophet talking that way? And then secondly, it's the whole matter of the science of interpreting scriptures. The technical term for that is hermeneutics. You have, whether it's good, bad, or not so good, or not so bad, is uh, you have a hermeneutic that is a way you handle the scriptures. There are over 300 prophecies concerning Christ's first coming through this prophet. It's huge. And you know what? They're all fulfilled literally. Keep that in mind. And that's going to be one of the themes and issues that we pursue. Now, who are the prophets? We've got two questions on this. One, who are the prophets? And then we need to consider us, who was Isaiah? Who are the prophets? You had priests, you had kings, you had prophets. What did the priests, what was their responsibility? The responsibility of priests was to explain truth. They were teachers. Remember the Levitical cities that were dispersed throughout Israel? Were there 48 of them? If I can do a little bit of crossover talk, that is like churches, this with cities where Levites lived, they were responsible for teaching the law to the people of Israel. You weren't far away from one of these locations for instruction. That's what the priests did. They were the teachers. But then you had the prophets. The prophets, oh, sure, there was residual teaching. Obviously, we've got Isaiah as an example. But the prophets were exhorters. The prophets were in your face. Do this. Don't do that. This is what God says. Now, that's the assumption of all Scripture. That's God breathed. It's God speaking. But the prophets were coming, came to the scene in Israel in very difficult situations. They talk about Perry being dropped in battle zones. <laughs> the prophets had their work cut out for them. It was difficult. There was resistance. There was just minimization of what they were saying, that kind of thing. So these were the prophets. They were the exhorters. They stimulation. The language just this is one reason I always love the prophets. Every part of the Bible is my favorite part. But, but the prophets, they just use language that just dances. 
I use all these figures of speech, similes and metaphors and personifications, and then you mix that in, you know, because the Hebrew language lends itself to that kind of thing, and it's just, it, it's just exciting, colorful. So we'll see this in this prophet. Then here, several matters. Who are the prophets? First of all, the prophets were God's mouthpieces. They were called to speak to their contemporaries with a thus saith the Lord. They were not primarily predictors of the future. This is where we tend to get read into it, some uh, popularistic ideas, that word, popularized ideas. They were not primarily predictors of future events. Actually, less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy is messianic. Now, is messianic prophecy there? I've already said that. But they were, thus says the Lord. They were, as this popularly referred to, they were foretellers. And in foretelling, they did foretelling. They did do that. Secondly, the prophets were covenant enforcement mediators. Get those words down. <laughs> covenant enforcement mediators. What covenant? The covenant that God made, well, first with Abraham, the covenant that he made with Moses. There were stipulations, responsibilities, obligations all through that. And they were enforcers, influencers, big time, mediators. Thirdly, the prophet's message was not their own, but it was God's. They were ambassadors from the heavenly court. And they laid out the divine sovereign will of the people. And fourthly, the prophet's message is unoriginal. <laughs> the prophets are not inspired to make any points or announce any doctrines that are not already contained in the covenant. That's the way you measure a prophet. How do I know? You say you're a prophet? Well, you've got to line up with what truth is revealed. It's read in Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31. So prophets had to make sure their message had to line up with what was revealed in Scripture. They weren't entrepreneurs, inventors. We get this idea about prophets that you just kind of a, a free grazing, just get in your face and really blast, blast away at those who were in a disobedient state before the Lord. I, this is a good summary of the message of Isaiah while I'm on this. Who are the prophets? I came out on this. I just copied it off. It said, it, I couldn't have said it better, but I would have said, we saying this anyway. Here is what you're going to find in the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Oh, by the way, don't get confused by this major minor thing. There's not major leagues, minor leagues. No, 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 no. They were all mouthpieces for God. It's just that the minor prophets were the shortest books. So here in these three major books, you have this special focus on this, the following. Here it is. You could, you could say it for every part of the prophet we would be in, this is the background. This is what we stand on to understand what's going on. Israel was being judged and dispersed to the nations and for covenant disobedience. But in the latter days, Israel would be gathered, regathered, and restored to the land and experience new covenant blessings, 
both material and spiritual, under the leadership of the ultimate son of David. As a result, the nations who will be judged for a time will also benefit from the reign of the Messiah and the restoration of Israel and become the people of God alongside Israel in an earthly kingdom. That's a, that's a big, that's a plateful. But do you get it? We're talking about the kingdom as it unfolds through the scriptures. There, that is a pronounced thread through the scriptures, the unfolding of the kingdom of God. But the prophets, they were always calling Israel, come back to your senses, come to your senses. You've departed from the law of God. Get it right. Now, next question. Who was Isaiah? Well, we don't know a lot about him, but we know this much. He is classified as the prince of the prophets. He has this, this unusual ability to uh, develop messianic prophecy. Um, you, you know, you've already jumped ahead of me, probably thinking Isaiah 53. But there are those four songs of the servant later on in Isaiah. He was a spiritual man, obviously. You see his call in Isaiah 6. He tells you about it. And he was just absolutely floored when he was called. Woe is me for I'm undone. I'm undone. And he gives you his call. He's aware of his sinfulness. And he was obedient to his call. He jumped out of the plane. Did he ever? And his ministry actually had a little effect, and he was told that up front. How do you like that for a job description? You're going to go out, you're going to speak my word, but you know what? You're going to speak to hard-headed people, and they're going to treat you as if you were, what I'm saying through you is insignificant. He was courageous, courageous. He was not afraid to rebuke. He pulled no punches. This is the prophets are this way. You can say this about all the prophets. They were courageous men. And so he was courageous. He had courage. And so he used all his powers, his eloquence. Oh, his eloquence is just stupendous as you begin to get a feel for it and go through it. His name means Jehovah saves. That fits the prophet. It's the prophecy itself. He had a wife and two children. His wife was a prophetess. He had two sons. He apparently was highly educated. His vocabulary style is way up there and the way the word's at his disposal. And he is, said, the most eloquent prophet of the Old Testament apart from Moses. All right, do you have that? All right, now that gives you, I hope, a little bit of footing. Now we are going to move through this first chapter. Here's what we'll do. I have one other little part of the frame to set as we, I'm going to read to you verses one through nine. And because we have four movements of thought through this, it's all I think comes around this when God speaks, when God speaks. Well, just let me read the first couple of verses and then I'll go further with that. That the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now a vision a vision was in the mind of the prophet. When somebody had a vision, in the mind of the prophet, they could see something dis displayed before their minds, the words. It was like being ha having a running PowerPoint. 
that was spirit-induced. That's what is involved in the vision. So he says, Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of... Now, here's where I was... A, if I were a classroom, we'd have some charts up here. We'd be seeing the lines of the kings and the northern king and some dates. You know, it's 586, uh, 6739, and so forth. Things that your eyes would start glazing over. Let me just tell you this much. In these kings to whom he refers here, Isaiah and Jotham and, and Hezekiah, uh, good kings. You, you familiar with that? Pattern when you read through first second king first second Samuel one prophet says and this one did that which was good in the sight of the Lord and this one did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord you you're familiar with that refrain so uh, three of these were pretty good I mean they were they sought to be obedient to the Lord now Ahaz Ahaz he was a spiritual jerk and uh, he was not but here's Isaiah he comes in and he has words to say he doesn't back off. So, kings of Judah. So, starting there, you'll notice the first word. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. These are witnesses against Israel called into what is going to be, we'll see a court scene. Now, why did Isaiah have his ministry? Three things. Just remember past, present, future. Isaiah, first of all, he had Israel's past that had to be dealt with, had to be confronted. You have to know something about it. Israel was a chosen nation. God singled them out as a people, developed them through the line of Abraham, and made them unique among the nations. And he says, God said to this developing nation, and he did this at Mount Sinai, going through the book of Exodus, so you should have some familiarity with this, that there is blessing and cursing. There are contingencies on your nationhood's success because in the development of the kingdom, as the nations see me in you, I am in your midst. We're going to deal with that in the Sunday school, adult Sunday school class. As you see me, as, the, as I am in your midst, I will be seen. You will be distinguished by my presence within you. But you've got to obey my commands, my law. And if you don't, if you do, there'll be blessing, there'll be prosperity. If you don't, there'll be a price to pay. It's very clear. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. Now, part of this past issue, Satan has a plan of universalism. He is seeking to take the legs out from under God's plan for the development of a king, the kingdom and the preparation of the earth for the Messiah. And Satan is working to knock that in the head. He's behind, he's in the, he's in the story. So here was Israel, who was a nation to be a nation among nations, displaying the righteousness of God. This is what God says is his moral law, the way he wants you to live, and so forth. But what did Israel do? They began to rebel. They said, well, we'll do it our way. And cursing began to fall. Afflictions came, even in Solomon's time. There, was the, there were the Philistines to deal with. It was like the cat and mouse in the middle in, the, in those nations. You had the big nations like Assyria and Babylon and Egypt. And then you had the, the other nations like the Philistines and the Amorites and the uh, Jebusites and so forth. So you had different ones. God began to let them, turn them loose. Go, 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 go because they were his instruments of discipline upon Israel. That was Israel's past. And Isaiah, the prophet, 
is dealing with in Israel, and guess who is lurking up there to the north, who is going to be sent and released by God to come. And let me tell you, these were people who were fierce warriors, the Assyrians. Okay, we can maybe see that as we go through these first, well, we won't, well, first 39 chapters, but that's, you see that frequently there. All right, then it's Israel's presence. Israel had become a corrupt nation. She chose cursing. And God sent degrees of discipline. He didn't give them the, he didn't give them the full licking right up front. He gave them incremental lickings so that they could, hopefully, those, those more modest disciplinary experiences, whether it was plagues or whether it was an invading army uh, or, or breakdown in leadership, and you had these awful kings, but God disciplined it in degrees. But guess what? They still refused to repent. Ah, uh, what are they thinking? And then we have Israel's future. Israel has a coming Messiah. Israel has a coming king who is going to be the king of kings. He's going to come as a servant of God. And he's going to provide deliverance from the cause of this punishment, which was the sinfulness of the people. And that's where Isaiah goes. That's why when you, by the time you get down to Isaiah 53, you're ready for this. Oh, what? What's the answer to this, to cultural societal breakdown in Israel. What's the answer? It's a sin problem. It's the heart. And it come to it, who has believed I report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Oh, we'll deal with that. I don't know when we'll get there, but uh, we're going to work in that. Now, I want you to notice this. Look at the sections of Proverbs, of uh, the first uh, chapter in Isaiah. This is just, we're just going to hover for just a few seconds here. It goes down from one through nine. That seems to me a very definite movement of thought. Uh, hey, I don't need to rehearse these with you because you've got it before you in the bulletin. You have that outline and you've got the one that's functioning up here on the screen. So just delete that statement. I'm not going to walk you through them. They'll become obvious. But here's what's happening. God is speaking. God says, jump, jump. And here's the first jump. The first jump, verses 1 to 9. So I'm going to read, follow with me, and then we'll summarize it. All right, that woke you up, didn't it? Okay, all right. All right. So he says, listen, O heavens and earth, and hear, O earth. For the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up. And... I'm, I'm going to intersperse at times some of the ESV translations in through this thing. But for right now, this is the new American standard. But they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. Uh, that was not hard, that's not too hard to figure out, is it? <laughs> that you get a pet, and they know where the food comes from. You're the feeder. You think, oh, you think Fido is just is totally devoted to you. And, and Fido is. They, Fido loves you. And you know one big reason? You feed him. <laughs> and so, but look, at least the animals, they know who feeds them. But look at you. Not a very good comparison here. <laughs> no flattery in this. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They won't acknowledge spiritual realities. They're dense, thick-headed, stiff-necked. What's wrong with them? 
And then a word that's quite often used in, in laments and, oh, things are sad and broken down. Alas, ha, the Hebrew word is hoy, hoy. You find it quite often, it's sometimes translated a woe in the prophets. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. This is what we know as apostasy. When you walk away from what God has clearly revealed and you said, I'm not going to do it, that's apostasy. And they have despised the Holy One of Israel. Keynote statement there. They did what? Holy One set apart in absolute perfection and righteousness, righteousness so other than we he is unlike we are, and part of that is his purity, but he is so different in his, he's infinite in his wisdom, in his, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's all of these perfections. And what? You've despised him, you've spurned him. What are you thinking? And so they have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again? Are you as you continue in your rebellion. Whose, the whole head is sick. This is the, the, Isaiah just can't talk very long without going into metaphors. <laughs> You're sick. You're pitiful. You're in the emergency room. And what? Outwardly. And the whole heart is faint. Inwardly. You're a mess. And from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it only bruises like wounds, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Those were medicinal measures taken at that time to help to promote healing. It was the best medicine available to help. And so, but you didn't seek that. Your, your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. I told you, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, I said, you're going to get a spanking as you've departed from my law. Now watch what happens to your environment. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in the vineyard. Zion this is referring to Jerusalem here. It's like a shelter in a vineyard. These were these temporary lean-tos they put out in the vineyards to uh, watch over the crops and in the, especially in the harvesting season. That's where how you're going to be rendered like a watchman hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts, the Almighty, who's left us with a few survivors, a remnant, just a handful, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Whoa, you do not want to be compared to those two cities. We'll see more on that. All right, that's the reading with a comment or two along the way. Now let's, uh, let's try to put it in tech and get, get the picture and get some handles on it. When God speaks of taking a rebellious Israel to the woodshed, now add this, you'd better listen when God speaks about coming divine discipline. Covenant chastening, you'd better listen. God's the, what's really going on here is that this is like a courtroom scene. This is a lawsuit language. God says, 
I've got a lawsuit against you, and the, God's the judge and the plaintiff. Israel is the defense, and they don't have a leg to stand on. That's the language he's using through here. It's a lawsuit. You can see this kind of language, and when you look out to other writings and uh, contemporaries in that time in, in history. But that's what's uh, happening here. I've got, I've, got, I've got a lawsuit against you, and, and it's, not, it's not looking good for you. So that's where he's going. And then this lawsuit scene, which you're going to see if, if we do these chapters, I don't know that we will, chapter 3, chapter 5, it, he rehearses this, that, you know, you had a miraculous, a miraculous birth, Isaac. You had a miraculous childhood, Egypt. What did I do for you to get you out of there? And a miraculous youth in the wilderness. I took care of you. Yes, it was hard, but I took care of you. I gave you food from heaven every day. Your sandals didn't wear out. Gave you air conditioning to walk in and all that arid, hot desert. And they had a miraculous adolescence, the period of the judges. And then there's Uzzah, Uzziah, excuse me, and Jotham. And the Israelites were far more politically mature than they were at one time. But at the same time, they were up to their necks in idolatry and spiritual rebellion, reaching new heights of rebellion. Oh, Isaiah, he's really sticking his neck out. He wouldn't get good press coverage, I'll tell you that. Only God has the remedy for God-inflicted wounds. You saw the language there, didn't you? And Israel was to be a holy nation, a people of Jehovah. You know what this reminds me of? And I don't have to go far to be reminded. In 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, you be holy for I'm holy. He says that in Leviticus about Israel. You've got that standard. And you have disobeyed me and... You are an open, raw, running sore from head to foot. Your organs aren't right. You got cancer of the liver. You are breaking, you got dermatological issues just incredibly bad. You're, every part of you, you're broken down. Well, he's using this vivid language to get them to see their spiritual condition. And so Isaiah is grieved by the sin of the nation. I mean, he's not having fun doing this, but he says, you're in bad shape. You know, we're all wounded in one way or another, aren't we? We're wounded more than we realize. I mean, physically, we know some of you are sitting there and some part of your body that's not, you know is not working right. And, um, but then we're in varying degrees of wounded conditions you know and somebody perhaps has wounded you and you have to deal with that some days you get up and it really sits on you heavily and uh, wounded and wound and and I don't know maybe some degree to which sin has been masked over has been covered over and it's it's taken its toll on us we've been wounded so we have this promise now notice he says alas alas this is a lament Here's what's happened. There's, first of all, there is religious apostasy. You've departed from direct, you've disobeyed God in his moral law. And then 
there becomes moral degeneration. And then there is political, political anarchy. Uh. You know, one of the challenges that we're facing going through any profit is getting the applicational counterparts. You know what I mean by that? How are you going to apply this? Is this, uh, to whom is he speaking? Should we immediately run off and get after the United States of America or whatever country you live in? Well, that's not unrelated. But who was Israel? They were his covenant people, a theocracy. God chose to use them uniquely in the family of nations to, de to declare his gospel and his holiness, his righteousness. What's the obvious immediate counterpart to that? Well, it would be the church. Now, I'm not saying that Israel and the church are not the same. That, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hammer on that one as we go along. We are not the new Israel, uh, my millennial friends. I have friends who are millennialists, and I read their statements. Okay, more on that a little bit later on. But look what he says. So he says there's a remnant of believers. You know, things are really bad. Things are really bad. But you know what? God doesn't go without having a voice, a people who are committed to him. I can't expand this. I think I'll talk a little bit more about it in the adult Sunday school class. Um, I'm thinking about what is being called now the de-churching of America. You familiar with this language? The de-churching of America? I mean, some, uh, is it uh, uh, Stone? Oh, he writes on the breakpoint to Colson's site. And uh, he makes this, I'll talk more about this when I have my notes in front of me. Um, in the next hour that he thinks this is the greatest social upheaval we've, we've experienced, we will have experienced in our lifetime in America. We're going through it right now. And a big part of it is the de-churching of America. Uh, some are estimating that like maybe at least a million less people now are going to church. Within the, all this is within the last three or four years. What's going on? And I, I'll only say this much that you know, I come to this conclusion. God's got a remnant. People may walk away from the church for whatever little excuses they have and to cover up what their inner motives could be. But God has a remnant of people who love him, who love his word, and who want to serve him and want to encourage one another and will stay in his church and not run out and get a fetal position and whine and cry. But they will be courageous and stand together and encourage one another. All right, let's go next. Notice, God speaks in his rejection of hypocritical worship. This jumps right off, off the page. Let me read this to you, 10 through 15. You still with me? All right, look at verse 10. And he says, hear the word of the Lord. Again, when God speaks, hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Solomon, Sodom, there's some culpability, responsibility here for the leadership where you've taken them. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. And when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts. Uh, we'll, we'll pause there. What's, uh, what's he saying? These were things that God had instituted. The Levitical system. 
sacrifice, burnt offerings, grain offerings, and so on. What's he saying? Go further. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. They're meaningless. Incense is an abomination to me. Well, didn't God give the recipe? We've been through Exodus. Didn't God give the recipe for incense and all that goes with the the altar of incense and, and so on? New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of burying them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, supplication, raising up the hands, that was the custom, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Whew, you get that? Let's, Let's plumb that. Let's check that out a little bit. God speaks in his rejection of hypocritical worship. Hypocritical worship. And we'd better listen carefully. God says, that which he instituted, he gave institutions for worship protocol. The book of Leviticus, very clear on it. But here he says, I'm sick of it. Why? Because ritual does not take the place of obedience. You can't create magic. Don't try to make magic out of some routine, out of some ritual, whether it's, you know, whether it is your, what you do, the format that you have. I'm going to get us close to home on this. We can't think that because we sing, because we pray, that that in of itself has value. God's not interested in superficial worship. Bloody hands lifted. You know, First Timothy, Paul says this in First Timothy chapter two and verse eight. I desire that the men in every place should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and quarreling. So what God's repudiating here is that which He had commanded the nation to do, but they had turned ceremonial worship. They had turned it into a, an attempt to manipulate God and stay on His good side—a quid pro quo thing. We do this for God; He does these things for us. Kind of a prosperity gospel. That's the way they had raced to the bottom in their relationship to the Lord. And so they divorced doctrine from practice. It was just superstitious worship. And you could, you know, you could pray and pray eloquent prayers and really get with it. Or you can raise your hands and jump around in the aisles and have all this praise, praise, praise. God could be saying, could be saying, I am not impressed. What's going on in your hearts, in your lives? My thoughts went along this way. I thought, well, listen, we're not off the hook on this. How much of a hypocrite am I? Uh, I can sing, I surrender all, and yet I can have angry words that come off my lips. I chew people up and spit them out. Hmm. Or I can raise my hand in worship and prayer and with those very hands, I can abuse my spouse and my children. You think that might happen? The reason I put these down because I thought, I thought of some situations of this. Oh, okay. it, it's sacrificing my time to attend church 
and wasting my time during the week by neglecting the reading of God's word and prayer. But, oh, I went to church, checked the box. God's not interested in checking boxes. Or it's, it's leading the church. I can lead it in worship, and yet I can chase lustful thoughts wherever they want to take me while I'm supposed to be worshiping God and leading others in worship. I can give lip service to justice and righteousness, but I don't pay my debts. I owe people. I'm stingy. I can judge others for their worry and fear while I nurse my fear and worry with alcohol and drugs. Maybe you've got a little secret closet life on those lines. I don't know. I just thought, I, I know of situations where that has occurred. Or it's, it's confessing my desire to teach God's word, but yet being critical and mean to my wife and children. I remember this on one occasion so long ago. This man was, oh, he had a passion to teach. And then I heard the way his family, the way he treated his family, oh, this is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. That's what they say. Hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. It's giving, it, it is, uh, it's giving lip service to the truth of headship and submission while being an authoritarian and a bully. That happens. That's it. That's what he's speaking of, that kind of thing. I've got, I'll skip along here. It's, it's judging others for their selfishness while I overindulge in what I eat and how much I eat and TV watching. But oh, I see what those people are doing. They're bad. Oh, look at Hollywood. Oh, look at all that stuff. But what about me? It's condemning the immorality of others while I entertain myself on the internet when nobody's around on pornography. Yeah, this is what Isaiah, and Isaiah's standing up to them face to face on this. Okay, I, we gotta move along. This is, uh, when, I, I, when God speaks, what do we do? Let's look at the next movement of thought here. When God speaks, he graciously gives us an invitation to repent. After all that, Lord, what is the exit? What do I do if you have just put your finger on something in my heart and life, in our church life, that needs attention? Here it is, verses 15 through 20. You with me? Let's look at them. And so, well, I'm going to begin at verse 16. Excuse me. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. There, there are nine of these. Count them. Remove evil, uh, the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. What's he saying here? Are these merit badges that you must collect in order to, to, to enter into God's heaven and to be accepted by him? No, 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 no. These are symptoms. These are, here is evidence that there is the regenerating work of God at work in your heart and life. The Spirit is working, and these are things that would fit within the context of the Mosaic system. The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. You, you, you can, if you wanted to, at time, you could see how these would go in that direction. And listen, 
do what the law says. Do these things. That will show. Repentance is not just what you say. It's what you do. It's the evidence in the life. That's what he's calling to do. Verse 16. And you know this verse, don't you? Let's see. I've memorized this. Come now, let us reason together. Says the Lord, through your sins be as scarlet, they should be as white as snow, they be red like crimson, they should be as wool. You know that verse, don't you? Here it is. Look at it. Come now and let us reason together. Says the Lord, though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. That they are red like crimson, they should be like wool. What's he saying? I'll come back to that. Let me go on with 19. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So if you, you're going to be eaten, or do you want to eat? <laughs> and the Assyrians will take care of this, the discipline of God. What he's saying in this 18th verse, I think it bears just uh, this kind of attention. He's talking about sin, signs of repentance in this passage. And naturally, I would think the question at this point for you and for me was, do I have sins, things for which I need to repent? Could be. We are to be repenters. A clarification. Uh, repentance has become an issue in some quarters with regard to how are we saved. You say we need to repent. Well, we do. Repent and believe. What do you do? When you, the believing is in the repentance, the repentance is in the believing. Because you're turning. You're turning from your idols. You're turning from your unbelief. Now, have you got to have a list of all the sins that which you're currently involved in? You repent of those, and then when you get that checklist off, then God saves you? I mean, does that sound to you just a little out of step with the grace of God? What about those sins that you haven't mentioned? I have, I have friends who insist on, well, you've got to repent of all those sins before you, you've got to repent of these sins before you say. And I think about past generations of great theologians, great theologians in America and outstanding pulpiteers. And you know what? They believed in slavery their entire lives. Yes, white supremacy. Yes. Were they good men? Did they preach, teach, and give us good books and commentaries on the Bible? But they participated in a system where God said it's purely, it's clearly, it's, it's, uh, it's an offense. It's simple because you don't participate in this buying and selling of people who have been kidnapped. That's sin. You ought to hate it. Now, got to be careful. We can say, whoa, these people, we can't believe anything they've said and anything they've done. They've all got feet of clay. And so, uh, hold on, that's another subject that needs attention because we've got issues today that we're looking the other way on, like the baby killing industry, which we're just frenetically pursuing without any conscience whatsoever. More about this in the next hour, in the Sunday school hour. But I wanted to say this very quickly about this reason. When he says, come down and reason together, let's read, he's not talking about a system of apologetics. No. This is courtroom language. What he is really saying here is, listen, I'm giving your options for the future, okay? Think, here are the options. You can repent and turn, and as you repent and turn and do what I say, that you can experience the, uh, the, the largesse, the, the good things, the benefits of obedience. I'm going to give to you as a nation in the theocracy, okay? But if you disobey me, you continue on the path you're going, 
I've got some people up there. I've got some hairy-chested swordsmen up there riding on horses who are going to cut, cut you to pieces and rape and steal and take everything you've got, and that's what's going to happen. Whoa! That could knock you back. So here are your options. So when he says come and reason together, he's not saying, well, you know, if we can just get enough arguments together and convince people that great big fish can swallow somebody and spit them out, or we can try to prove the miracles of the Bible, and then we can get lower the threshold of unbelief, and then somebody can go. That's not what he is saying here. Come down and let us read. He's not saying it at, at all. No one, John 6, 44 and 665. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, Jesus speaking, and I will raise him up on the last day. And in verse 65 of John 6, this is why you told, I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Uh, be careful with the free will talk, like we can just come, we can do as we please. The Spirit of God works inside to draw us. Do we feel it? Do we know it? We'll know it when we, believe, we, we, we have believed and trusted Christ. Thank you, Lord. You enable me because in myself, I don't have the equipment to do that to come to you because I'm prejudiced against you. But you did a miracle in my heart. It's called a work of regeneration, conviction of the Spirit. All right, so with that said, do we understand what he's putting across? What I wanted to do at this point will be candid with you at this point because this passage has become something typical of other passages in the prophets where the whole issue of the social gospel comes up. And there are those who seek to use passages in the prophets like if we are really going to get with a, a live, vibrant Christianity and that the reason why we're being de-churched is that there's not enough social action going on. And then you get coming in the back door a social gospel quite often. Not saying if you're a social activist, you're believing in social gospel. But that's worthy of some thought and some, diff, uh, some treatment. Uh, later, other time. I can't do everything. I had to find this out when I had 31 verses. So you're with me? Look at the next statement. Verses 21 to 23. When God speaks sorrowfully over our spiritual adultery, listen. Listen to his language here, verse 21. And he said, how the faithful city has become a harlot, just a prostitute. Oh, that had to really rattle their cage. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her. We could be safe and secure there. You know, when you obey God, things are going to get better in many ways. It'll eliminate some problems. But now, murderers, your silver has become dross and your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan. Oh, a huge issue, Exodus 22 and 23 through 23. You take care of the dispossessed, the disenfranchised, the widow and the orphan. Don't, don't turn a, a, a blind eye to those in your, in your life, in your community. Nor does the widow's plea come before them. See what he's saying there. Here's, here's the repentance. You repent, then you're going to be moving out into do these relational, this relational work. So when God speaks 
you can see in this also, can't you? See the spiritual spiral downward and how a society falls apart? I would really love to take off on this for a little while, but we're going to have to let it come a little later. And what's happening to our own culture? Our own culture, I think that's a legitimate application. Any society, any society, whether you're a theocracy or not, I can take you to other prophets, like the book of Nahum, for example, and even parts of Isaiah where he goes after the non-theocratic nations, Babylon. He goes after them on a moral basis. So there's no such thing as the secularists would have you believe. Oh, you've got to stay in your box and you just do your, you just do your moral talk based on your belief in your, your Christian persuasion. But don't try to bring that into the arena of life. And don't be saying, well, we need to pass this law. We need to pass this law. You're just trying to create a theocracy. That's a smokescreen. There is a moral law of God to which he holds all the nations accountable. And America is held accountable. We have the audacity to put on our, on our coinage and our money. In God we trust. And we have a legacy in this nation to which we have in the past committed ourselves that if we're going to have a thriving, thriving nation that is going to have the, the, the cornucopia of benefits of living in a place where God's moral law to a greater degree, not perfect, not perfect, but it's, re it's rejected. Oh, that just floods in on my thoughts at this moment, how we are just stiff-arming God. We're just telling, we don't need you. We'll take young people and we'll tell them, no, you're not a male, you're not a female. We'll cut off the parts and tell you that you're what you want to be. Folks, that's apostasy. That's evil. Now, it hadn't gone that far, but it, I'll tell you, it had in other ways because one of the things the prophets go after is Israel had bought into in their syncretistic worship, the worship, the way the Amorites and the Canaanites and the, uh, the others in their surrounding nations uh, sacrificed children. And Israel incorporated in some of the kings and did it. So God will turn us over to the consequences of our moral failure and our rejection of him. And I think we're living to see it in our own day. That's what's happening. Now, I don't want to leave you under a cloud on this. Say, whoa, we'll just go out of here and be dismal, gloom, and doom people. No, it's saying to, what does he say here? Well, I examine our own hearts. I can do praying. I can, oh, all right, I must conclude. I'm over time. But let me show you this. Look at the last, the last movement here. When God speaks, well, we speak sorrowfully with regard to adultery and said, you've, you're behaving like prostitutes. You're going after other gods. Be careful. We don't want to, <laughs> this, the, the language that he uses here that, oh, we've got, to, we've got to do everything we can to keep the Dow Jones good. Oh, that market's got to keep, and the economy, oh, and that's the biggest problem that we have right now is economic. No, it isn't. But you go and put that microphone in front of people on the street and say, what's the biggest problem we have right now for all these candidates for president? It's the economy, it's the economy. No, it's not. But that's the way Israel was thinking. They had gods. We have our gods. All right, here, let's get this last one. And so he says, God speaks within verses 24 to 31. Don't have time to read it. Um, when God speaks, lay hold of his promises. And what he's going to do here, and this passage is so uh, important that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So I'm going to invention, so I'm going to take this and I'm going to tag it. 
and I'm going to tag it and put it into what we'll do two weeks from now in Isaiah. I haven't determined what chapter we're going to do next, but I can guarantee you we've got to look at verses 24 through 31. And the point is, in the very last verse, I can take you there in verse 31, where he says that uh, there is to be something considered with what you've chosen to do. And you, what you've done, you have done in your desire to, you see the language he says that the oak in the garden is that you have created these immoral, evil places where you worship your gods out in the open in these lewd, that's a weak word for this, this depraved, corrupted system of life that you have chosen to live in defiance of the law, you have created the stuff that's going to make everything go up in smoke. It has consequences. That's why he concludes, there will be none to quench them. See, that's the last line in verse 31. What he's saying, that's he's really implying this, the, 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 the doctrine of an eternal hell. There will be a price to pay and it will come in the form of fire which you have fed by your wicked deeds. Reminds me of Revelation in chapter 20. So here is where we are with these things. Let's get back at the doorway to the plane. You're a paratrooper. You remember that? You're still, we're paratroopers. We've got to jump out of the plane. It, God's got us. All right, here. What's it take? Jump. Hold on, Art. Jump. Jump. It takes courage to live in a society where fists are in the face of God and there is a refusal to repent and idolatry left and right. Examine our own hearts. Lord, how has it infected me in ways that I need to get with you more, Lord, about some of these things? Am I thinking right? Is my life, is our church a witness to the nations, to this nation, to this community, my life? I think we need to pray about it. Thank you, Lord, for this word to us. We need it. We need your word. Thank you for Isaiah, Lord, his boldness, his courage, but born, Lord, by the power of your spirit. Father, if there's one here this morning who's never put his or her trust in Jesus Christ, oh, may they lay down their arms and come to you and turn from their unbelief and turn to Jesus Christ, who is sufficient to forgive our sin and to give us new life and ignite within us a holy desire to please you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.